Well, grace and peace to you. It's really good to be with you today. But before we talk about Jesus, can we talk about football a little bit more? So I, I still can't get over the last 10 seconds of last Sunday's game. Can you? Um, this was the first football game that I've watched in like five years, and, and today will be my second. Um, but here's what stands out to me from last week. So like there are 60,000 screaming fans, and, and they're all wearing purple and gold, kind of like this, right? Some have faces painted. Grown men wear helmets with yellow braids sticking out. No one's sitting down. There's too much adrenaline for that. So they're standing and jumping, and, and they're imagining that they can help control what happens in the next 10 seconds by their decibel levels and by their fervent prayers, right? The prayer goes like this. Please, 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 right? Maybe you will pray that prayer later today. As amazing as that is, it goes beyond those who are in the stadium. The hopes and dreams of a million other people in front of their TVs rests on what happens next. And the focus rests on two people. I, I looked this up on the internet. The quarterback and the wide receiver. There are, there are very large, incredibly strong human beings who be, are scrambling on their field, on, and, and they want to stop you, maybe even hurt you. But the quarterback and the wide receiver, they're not distracted. They have this superhuman, single-minded focus on something else. Simply passing the ball and catching it. If they allowed themselves to be distracted by the noise or, or the burning hopes of an entire state, it would be paralyzing, wouldn't it? So now, let's travel in our minds to ancient Jerusalem. The Passover was coming up, and it was a really big deal. Jesus and throngs of others are making their way to the temple to remember how God rescued their people from slavery in Egypt. And they're getting ready to revisit the story of the ten plagues, and, and the last one in particular, when God passed over the homes that had the blood of a lamb painted over the door and visited horror upon those who did not. This Passover was, was the very thing that made it possible for the Hebrews to flee their bondage and escape to freedom. You know, we're going to remember the last 10 seconds of last week's game for a really long time. But God's people have been remembering how God rescued them for thousands of years. People from all over Israel are making their way to this temple in Jerusalem. And it's kind of hard for us to imagine because uh, traveling just to, to one house of worship in one place, right? When we have churches every few blocks. But there was one temple, and inside this one temple, 
deep inside the inner sanctuary, behind a heavy curtain, was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God chose to dwell. One God in one place. If you want to be near the presence of God, you go to the temple. The people at the temple have everything ready. It would have been impossible for out-of-towners to, to bring their own animals for sacrifice on the altar. So, so conveniently, there were people there ready to sell cattle and sheeps and doves. And this was also a time where God's people could pay their temple tax. But it would be bad form to pay the temple tax with, with a Roman coin with Caesar's image on it. So, so conveniently, there are money changers there who would gladly exchange your Roman coin for, for temple-approved currency and, of course, make a little profit. This was a massive, finely-tuned system to help God's people participate in the religious rituals of sacrifice. You sacrifice an animal or a dove to atone for your sins, and, and that's how you seek God's favor. And this system had gone on for centuries. So, so one day, right before Passover, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And he arrives at the temple, and he sees all the people selling all the things. Imagine the scene, huh? Crowds of people, and cattle, and sheep, and, and, and doves in cages, and and workers seated at tables ready to change your money. This massive, finely tuned sacrificial system is at, has been at, at work for as long as anybody can remember. And Jesus gets mad. He makes a whip out of cords and he drives the sheep and the cattle out of the temple and they go running off in all directions, can you imagine? And he, and he marches up to the tables of the money changer and he pours out the coins, turning them into rushing metallic rivers on the floor. What's going on? These people are here to actually help God's people be religious. To do the acts of sacrifice needed to make things right with God. Why in the world is Jesus angry? And I wonder if Jesus came to our churches today, would he be angry at some of the things that we're doing? And the things that we assume are good? And even more so, can we even handle the idea of an angry Jesus? I was with some good people at a, at a Lutheran church in Edina on Wednesday, and, and one man said, you know, I don't think Jesus was angry. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says he was filled with zeal, not anger. And all over Facebook this week, pastors from around the country are just fussing with this idea. Could Jesus really be enraged? There's this idea that anger somehow is not nice. Here's what I'm thinking about this week. What if anger is a result of fierce love. Jesus came to us with an incredible, single 
minded focus to show us the way that God loves. And for that to happen, my brothers and sisters, he needs to confront systems, lots of them. And he's starting with this system of sacrifice. So here's the thing. In, in today's story, Jesus isn't just turning over tables. He's turning over a system of how we relate to God. Over are the days when we need to make a sacrifice on an altar to get into right relationship with God. And if you listen to the prophets, maybe those days never existed. The prophet Micah asked, With what will I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And then the prophet reminds us, God has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to what? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Waving a whip made of cords and pouring out bags full of coins and turning tables upside down, Jesus is replacing the, the atoning sacrifice system with a new one. A system of liberating love. A love system that, that frees us from needing to try to earn God's approval and instead just starts out by declaring, you are already a beloved child of God. Already. Period. And now that you don't have to worry about making God happy, you can worry about the happiness of your neighbor which sometimes means questioning systems. It sometimes means paying attention to what makes you angry and then doing something about it. Because if you love someone, don't you get angry when, when systems are set up against them? Don't you get angry when the kids at the school down the street get hungry on the weekends? There are systems at work that keep kids hungry and people poor. Don't you get angry when, when Human Resources rejects the resume of DeMontre but reads the resume of Danny? That's a system at work. Don't you get angry when 63% of women have to endure harassment at work? That is a system at work. Don't you get angry when hundreds of thousands of refugees are blocked from finding a new life in a new country? There are systems at work. If Jesus has showed us anything about God, our holy parent, it's that God has a single-minded focus. Love and justice for all of God's children all of them. It wouldn't be love and justice if God just shrugged her shoulders and said, well, I guess that's how the system works. No, 
Jesus has turned the tables and has shown us this radically upside-down way of looking at the world. Hang on to your seat. Who knows where following Jesus will lead us next? Amen.